Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We're talking about seatbelts on Today in Ohio in the latest episode. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and it's Wednesday. Courtney Astafi, our City Hall reporter. And Courtney, we're going to start you off with a Statehouse story. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine wants your failure to wear a seatbelt to be a legal reason for police to pull you over. Who stands in his way? Well, we do not know who exactly stands in his way. So the Ohio House Finance Chairman, in talking to our reporters this week, said he wasn't sure which member asked to scrap DeWine's idea here. But it has been scrapped, at least for now, from the House's version of the budget. And and what this really entails is DeWine's looking to make seatbelt violations, failure to wear them, a primary offense. Right now, they're a secondary offense. So how that works is if a cop sees that you're speeding, goes to pull you over and sees that you're also not wearing your seatbelt, you can be ticketed for not wearing your seatbelt on top of the speeding. But you can't just be pulled over straight for for when when an officer sees that you're not wearing a a seatbelt. And what I find interesting here is that DeWine's pushing for this change. Ohio is not out on a limb in pushing for this change. So we learned that 20 states have already deemed it as a primary offense if anyone in the vehicle is seen not wearing a seatbelt. And 14 additional states have it as a primary offense for those who are sitting in front seats without a a seatbelt. So it's not like DeWine's proposing something radical. But I'm confused a little bit here, though. I'm sorry. I don't mean to jump in, Chris. But don't we have a thing on the electronic billboards that says click it or ticket? I mean, that sounds like they could pull you over for not having a seatbelt anyway. It's a secondary offense. So, I mean, they can ticket you, but they can't pull you over for just that. There has to be another offense there. I think there's a whole different element to this story that we really should be talking about in that... We've seen that police use this kind of minor infraction to target people by race. And when you look at what happened to Jalen Walker, that all started because of a light bulb being out and it resulted in a chase and ultimately his death. And I know we can debate who brought that on, but it did start with a minor infraction. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we need to give the police more reasons to target people. I really think we ought to take away those and say, you know, the easiest thing to do with a thing like Jalen Walker, his lights out. We have his license plate. Let's send a citation to the registered owner of the car, not pull him over. The pulling him over is where mm-hmm. it creates the conflict. The seatbelt violation, I, you know, the use of seatbelts has gone way, way up in my lifetime. When Lisa, when you and I were oh, young, yeah. you didn't even have seatbelts in the backseat. Right? No. And, and everybody or most people are using them. Why create another potential for conflict? We know Eric Foster has a tremendous column today about how every time there's a police killing of a black person, that the, the result is, oh, we have to build a better relationship. But one of the ways to build a better relationship is to stop targeting people for minor infractions. Why, why don't we take them off the table instead of adding more? Mike DeWine says this is about safety, but really... 
This just gives police another reason to harass black people. Yeah, yeah, that concept of using minor infractions to target and pull over black folks, that, that, that that's known as, I think, a pretextual stop. And we see that it's used, you know, when, when someone drives left of center or when a license plate is out, light is out, different things like that. I, I think you're hitting on something there, Chris. And 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 I some of the numbers that we saw in this reporting yesterday does talk about how, I guess, small proportionally to the larger population, this is an issue. Apparently, seatbelt use is found to be the lowest among youngest drivers, age 16 to 24, but that's still at 88%. So, I mean, it's not like it's like half of, of young folks driving around aren't wearing their seatbelts. Don't you think you'd have to be really close to a car to be able to tell someone's not wearing their seatbelt? This is not something you can spot from far away. It's, it's harder to see than a broken taillight. Right. I, look, mm-hmm. it. I. I think it's a bad idea. I think I. We with the license plate visible, and even if the lights out, police can use spotlights to see it. We ought to be mailing infractions instead of creating more opportunity for this. I just. This is a bad idea. It just we're we're coming out of this huge controversy over Jalen Walker. We ought to be thinking in the opposite direction. That's why I put this question first because I think creating more opportunity for those kinds of conflicts, it just seems like there's a subtext here that's not about safety. You want to increase seatbelt use? Put money into a a publicity campaign. That's how we got most Americans to start wearing them. There was a huge push and it worked. I mean, I cannot imagine driving a seatbelt. Like that is just such an uncomfortable idea, right? And I, I think a lot, most people feel that way. If they did it, they, you know, wouldn't be so high. I didn't wear one until the Wall Street Journal did a five-day series about their efficacy, and I've worn one ever since, <laughs> going way back. I think it was in 1980 that that happened. No, I just think uh, young folks are more used to doing it because we've grown up with it. You know, this has been standard in our lifetimes in a way it wasn't for generations that preceded us. You grew up in a child safety seat, which is unthinkable to people <laughs> right. like me and Lisa. We just, yeah, we just stood up in the front seat. Yeah. <laughs> well, everything has changed, not to prolong this, but like when I was a kid, my brother was five years younger than me. And I remember him being in the front seat as an infant, right? Like we don't put kids in the front seat now until they're at least 12 and like hit five foot. So, yeah, safety standards always changing. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio, or uh, some people measure the success of lawmakers based on how much they get passed, although that's not necessarily a good measure. What does a new ranking say about the effectiveness of Ohio lawmakers, Laura? That Jim Jordan isn't very effective. (laughs) That's not how he judges success, and he doesn't want to get bills passed. But if you do, there's a new University of Virginia and Vanderbilt University study from the Center for Effective Lawmaking, and it looked at the bills each member of Congress sponsored, whether they advanced through the legislative process and were signed into law, and the significance of that legislation. And it ranked members with own, within their own parties to avoid penalizing those in the legislative minority, which obviously is a lot harder to get anything done if you don't have the majority. So Cincinnati's Brad Wenstrup was third among the 222 Republicans in the House of Representatives in 2021 and 2022. Dave Joyce from South Russell was eighth. Anthony Gonzalez of Rocky River no longer in Congress, ranked 18th, and Bowling Green's Bob Latta ranked 29th. Uh, The only two Republicans more effective than Brad Wenstrup were Don Bacon of Nebraska and Don Young, who died last year from Alaska. And uh, Dave Joyce is proud of this. He regularly meets with Speaker Kevin McCarthy as the 
lead of a caucus of moderate Republicans. He says he takes the responsibility of advocating for Northeast Ohioans very seriously. We'll never stop fighting to make progress on the issues that matter most to the people of our community. But they're not making progress on issues that matter the most to to their community. It's just not true. They're passing garbage laws. Jim, I know we constantly criticize Jim Jordan because he is the circus clown of Congress, but he has a point. If, if the whole idea of the Republican Party is we need less regulation, not more, he's right about not measuring congresspeople by what they get passed. The, the, the better measurements, I think, would be how often do they work with people across party lines and reach compromises? They don't do that. They pass. Well, Jordan his, definitely doesn't do that. No, but they pass these little, you know, bills that that are, are easy, but they don't do the big stuff. Look what's going on with the the whole debt ceiling right now. There's no sense there. It's another showdown. I think these measurements are kind of bogus. I, I don't know. I, I you could say getting those little things passed like Dave Joyce does might have incremental change, but the profound things we need in America that aren't happening. That's not. Congress isn't doing that. So how can you say anybody is successful? Well, that's very true. I, I, I don't think anyone looks at Congress and is like, this is a really effective body. They're really leading us in a wonderful way. I, I, I do think it's interesting. We've talked about this report before, but Rob Portman, he ranked third in effectiveness in the Senate. And he's said before that not having to run for reelection in 2022 freed him up to spend his last two years in Congress negotiating compromises with colleagues instead of raising reelection money. And I really think that this is an important point that especially in the House where people run for reelection every two years, they don't have a lot of time to actually get things done because they're so busy calling people asking for money and, you know, probably kowtowing to lobbyists who gave them money. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Some big changes to the Ohio budget proposal offer all sorts of goodies to Northeast Ohio. Lisa, I don't get it. They don't like us in Columbus. They've The, <laughs> the rural legislators really kind of hate the cities. Why all these goodies? Well, and it's nice as millions and millions of dollars of goodies for Northeast Ohio in the newly revised budget. So one of the big ones is that the biggest three biggest counties, Cuyahoga, Franklin, and Hamilton, will now be allowed to have seven sports betting facilities in their counties. That's up from five. And so the number of gaming licenses is 40. That will not change but they're going to be moving dormant licenses from other counties to these three big counties. Um, They're also talking about $10 million to the Cleveland Food Bank, a million dollars to reimburse first responders who will be deployed around the April 2024 solar eclipse, Um, $3.5 million for erosion mitigation in Mentor. The Cleveland Museum of Art, the Orchestra, and the Natural History Museum will get $500,000 apiece. Uh, There's $3 million for Cleveland Neighborhood Progress for Mid-Neighborhood Investment Projects. And then $5.6 million goes to the Open Doors Academy for Northeast Ohio, focusing on Lima, Sandusky, and Mansfield out-of-school programs and some new locations for those programs. I'm having a hard time understanding why you need a million dollars for first responders. Is that because of all the people that look into the sun and need eye care? (laughs) Or are they expecting people to do, oh my gosh, the sun's gone dark and there's going to be riots in the street. That one was a weird one. What about crowds? Don't you think they they want all these tourists to come to see it? Maybe they just want to have some crowd control. What crowds? You look up. You don't have to gather to see it. It's in the sky. (laughs) They're not all going to go downtown, I guess. I don't know. That seems strange. The 
one that's really exciting is the money to pay for the Say Yes specialist. Yes. We've talked a lot about how there was a crisis. The specialists that address the non-educational needs of Cleveland students are lifesavers, and their, their, their budget was threatened. The state coming through with that money, that's really a big deal. Yeah, that was $6.75 million, and that's going to be to help, as you said, hire family support staff for the Say Yes to Education program. I, I wish I could understand why they suddenly are throwing money at us. Maybe it's the power of the podcast. They hear us talk all the time about how there's <laughs> this urban-rural divide, and they're realizing there could be revolution in the streets, and they're sending us some money to... Did they call you and ask for your Christmas wish list? <laughs> <laughs> what you wanted to give millions of dollars just, to? This was a very nice surprise. We'll see how much of it stays in the budget. It still has to go to the evil Matt Huffman in the Senate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb in a showdown with the city council over what to do with the West Side Market? Courtney, so many people look at the West Side Market as this big treasure, but it is falling apart. What's going on? Yes, there is definitely a big showdown here. So in this latest tranche of proposed ARPA spending, we've got alignment between council and the mayor for everything, it seems like, except for this West Side Market piece. Bib was initially seeking $20 million to do, you know, what they're calling basic needed repairs for the, the market, deferred maintenance that they say hasn't been taken care of forever. Basic things like food preparation areas in the basement and 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 just structural things like the envelope and roof. And and council is not not sold on this idea is one way to phrase it. And, and, you know, I've been hearing so much from, we've, we've been hearing so much publicly about this debate, right? And I've been hearing so much behind the scenes. This has struck a nerve and there's really been this back and forth here. Some on council are saying, hold on, we don't know if we should be sinking that much money into a single city asset when there's so much need and, and Cleveland neighborhoods are deeply impoverished and could use any, any money they're able to get in this federal aid offers a chance to really supplement what we raise on our own here locally to provide city services. You know, they talk about sinking money into a city asset. They're about to sink hundreds of millions into a football stadium that gets used eight times a year. They, they have a $2 billion plan for the airport. It's all a matter of scale, but the West Side Market is a smaller operation. But to think about it in terms of, well, we're putting a lot of money into a city asset. That's what you do. You invest in the assets. Right. I get what they're saying. I get that there's that they've got pools that are not running well, but the West Side Market draws a whole lot of people. The the comment that chafed was this is for people in the suburbs and I'm I'm sick of that kind of thing. You got to remember most of the money in the city budget comes from people in the suburbs and the wage tax they pay with no representation. It is the definition of taxation without representation. And if you don't take care of them once in a while, you could have a revolt on your hands when we try to abolish wage taxes in this state. Courtney, do you want to read that line from Charles Slife? Because I think when we were in the newsroom, we were all just repeating that one. It was such a like zinger. Yeah, that? absolutely. So so the comment there was, he, like you said, he was talking about the need for improvements at recreation centers. And, and I think the argument there is Westside Market's a city asset, but there's a whole bunch of other city assets that are in disrepair that serve more more Clevelanders and, and the neighborhoods. And, and what Slife said in making that point was, all Cleveland neighborhoods need investment, even the areas people from the suburbs don't visit once a month to play city. But I, I think that's 
that's a heck of a quote, but I think it's getting at at something here. People who live in the suburbs are are used to good neighborhood services. They have nicer rec centers, better paved streets. There is more money to go around, you know, per capita because they don't have those those urban and, and poverty issues that Cleveland has. So I think the point here is that, you know, there's an argument to be made that we want those kinds of services, not not necessarily paying for assets that are such a regional tourist draw. But but then there's that argument on the other side that the that the West Side market is that draw. It brings people into the city and it and it helps the bottom line, which which allows the city to do you know, other investments in neighborhoods. So it's it's a push and pull here. And, you know, I'm working on a story. It It's really representative of this perennial debate we have in Cleveland politics, the city center, the tourist assets that attract people from outside the city versus the neighborhoods, the, the Clevelanders who live here. The, to say, though, the suburbanites come to the market to play city is so disrespectful. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be saying things like that. That's just that's not what you should say as an elected official. It's it's very confrontational, very divisive. And that's what we can expect from Mr. Slice. If I could say something real quick, I feel like we have pushed infrastructure issues for city-owned assets down the road for decades. And all it does is get more expensive. And sometimes these social justice programs that they use the money for are too vague or too broad or not effective. So, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a weird situation. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right, though, Lisa. This is the result of years of neglect. If they had budgeted appropriately through the last 20 years, they wouldn't have things falling apart like they are. I remember when Mike White was mayor, he made a huge investment in the West Side Market. They put a lot of uh, money into it for the city bicentennial. I think that's fairly, pretty much the last time you had mm-hmm. that kind of a focus, and now we have it falling apart. At the very time, we have a vision where it might become even a bigger draw so you're, you're exactly right. Infrastructure has to be tended to. And, and how much, I mean, how much is that deferred maintenance and, and, and lack of investment, though, a result of there's not enough money to take care of the need? We are built and have assets as a city that, that supports a population much larger than we have now. Does Cleveland have the money to take care of all of its assets? I, I'd assume no. Maybe what they should have done has gone over to the county for some help because they're squandering $50 million on the medical board. (laughs) (laughs) So you could have used it for a treasured city asset instead of flushing it down the toilet. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We love young activists. Why did some third and fourth graders in Shaker Heights stage a rally at their school? Laura, I love this story. I do too. Because of nimbyism, basically, some neighbors are upset about how their garden beds look. But this is Onaway School in Shaker Heights, and they those kids don't want to relocate their beloved native pollinator garden beds. These are four beds in front of the school, planned and installed in 2016. The idea is that it attracts the native plants that attract birds and butterflies and things that are supposed to be in the Midwest and not just a pretty as Susan Brownstein, our garden columnist, puts it, yay flowers kind of garden. That's that's uh, actually a quote from one of these kids. And so it looks a little messy when it's not in bloom, which, you know, the biggest bloom time is the summer when school is not in session. So some residents in the Onaway area don't want to see it. They want it moved. And the kids are saying, no, we want to keep it right here in the very front of our school. We want to keep our garden club and keep learning about the birds and the butterflies and all of these uh, plants. 
Yeah, let's face it. These plants are what we have long thought of as weeds, but <laughs> bugs love them. And so if you're trying to help the treasured insects thrive, you plant the weeds. I mean, this this is a great project by the kids and these traditionalists that just want to see daisies and mums and the kind of flowers that they have in their yards are trying to sweep it away. I love that the kids staged a rally to say, no, we support the butterflies. Yeah, and they had quite a crowd and they had those big lawn uh, yard sign. Um, so they've got a committee going that is going to keep fighting this. So I, I don't think it's over yet. But these this is you know, these are within the boundaries. This is not taking over anybody's yards. It's actually fairly neat if you look at Susan Brownstein's photos and they are labeled. So they're educational. So kids can know, okay, that's the wild strawberry right there. We're talking about milkweed, indigo, golden Alexander, um, cup plant, things that you are being encouraged at this point to put in your, your yard. It's better for the earth. It's better for the, the animals. Yeah, I love Susan Bronstein. Her column is a treasure. I'm so glad that she's writing it. I got to talk to her, though. I read a couple of things recently that the best way to grow tomatoes is to take the plant and plant it sideways in a trench. And I'd love to see her thought on that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I cannot imagine that anyone is truly excited by the prospect of four more years of Joe Biden as president. But did some politicians put the truthometer in the closet and tell us they were excited by his announcement that he will seek re-election. Lisa. Well, yeah, and as you can imagine, this fell along party lines. Uh, the Democrat from Warrensville Heights, Chantel Brown, says she is proud to stand with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the campaign, and she echoed his campaign uh, slogan, let's finish the job. Uh, Ohio Democratic Chair Elizabeth Walter says Biden has delivered for the Ohio working class. He had our back, and we look forward to supporting his reelection campaign. On the other side of the aisle, Senator Matt Dolan, the Republican from Chagrin Falls, says that Biden's agenda is failing to protect the USA at home and abroad. And he mentioned the same talking points, inflation, border security, public safety. Jim Jordan, he says, real America knows that the Biden administration has been a disaster. And this was a tweet that he had that featured photos of high gas prices, crime, and the Afghanistan withdrawal and immigration and so forth. Max Miller, the Republican from Rocky River, who is a former Trump aide, he says, this made me laugh. Biden should finally come to the table and negotiate a responsible debt limit increase to avoid the first default in history. And this was a retweet of a post from uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker. I know it was so much blah, blah, blah. But, but I mean, to, and for people to criticize Biden, they're basically standing behind Donald Trump. That's what blows me away is the Democrats have a clear victory coming if Trump is the nominee because middle America doesn't want him. It's just the fringe Republicans. Why doesn't Gretchen Whitmer run? Why don't we get somebody that's, that's doing things today instead of going with the tired old guys. And let's face it, Biden is slipping. You can see it. Shouldn't we be having some more vital younger candidates with new ideas? Uh, like, but who are those candidates? Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. She'd be great. She's had a, a great run up there. She's, She's captured the national attention. This would be a chance for the woman to win the White House for the first time. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer versus Donald Trump with abortion in the air. I think that's a walk. Instead, we're going to have Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. America deserves better. You know, we need to go to the ranked open primary. 
with the party primary system, we're always going to have terrible candidates. But if you if you went with that system where it's one primary for everybody, the top five candidates go to the November ballot, and then you have ranked voting to see who wins, you'd get rid of it. Good candidates would bubble up. It's the answer to our terrible, terrible polarization in America. And it would give a chance for people like Gretchen Whitmer to win. And it's interesting because most of the news outlets are hammering on polls that saying Biden's approval rate is low and that, you know, a, a w- big majority doesn't want to see him run again. So it's like, you know, the truth is somewhere in between. I I'm wish with Chris it- on this. I wish that we could we could find out who was more electable and, and palatable to Americans, because I don't think that I think it's kind of going to be a sigh like, OK, well, this is, you know, the better of two evils. It's broken. Our, our system is completely broken and we have to change it. The, the political parties have pretty much corrupted it. They pick the candidates. And so you and I don't get to say we don't have a say in who the candidates are. If you're an independent voter, you have no say, because by the time it gets to November, it's it's a done deal. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've lost Courtney, so let's skip ahead. Is Hathaway Brown buying Laurel? What's going on in the land of hoity-toity schools in Cuyahoga County, Laura? I would like to point out that the land of hoity-toity schools is on the east side of Cleveland. <laughs> of course. Uh, but this story is hilarious. It's it's a senior prank. So on Tuesday morning, there was a Twitter account named Shaker Zero Line. Like, it's Shaker Online, but with a zero instead of the O, because Shaker Online is the actual city account for Shaker Heights, Ohio. So it's difficult to tell a zero from an O. And they said that Hathaway Brown is going to be buying nearby Laurel School. And, you know, these are the two kind of premier all-girls schools on the east side of Cleveland. Although you should know that I guess Laurel does have um, education for really small boys too. So they have a little bit of co-ed, but that is a hundred percent not true. Laurel sent out a letter Then Hathaway Brown sent out a letter. They apologized. And, and both schools are basically like beware of social media and learn to check your facts. Like let this be a lesson for us all. Well, this is Elon Musk's fault. I mean, (laughs) no, really. He took away the blue checks because he wants people to pay for them, which very few people are going to do. And so you no longer know that anybody is who they say they are. It happened to Justin Bibb almost immediately. As soon as Mm -hmm. the blue check went, somebody created a fake account, started putting out nonsense. It's made Twitter about as useless as wet toilet paper. So I don't know how you move forward. It's just an interesting contrast with our previous story. At the public school in Shaker, you got third and fourth graders out championing insects and doing the right thing. At the hoity-toity schools, you got them scamming each other on Twitter. I mean, I, 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 I don't <laughs> think the seniors thought this through. I mean, they didn't hurt anyone. Obviously, they thought it was funny. They're probably in trouble. It's not a good idea to make fun, you know, to put out something like this at a rival school. But, you know, as far as like high school kids pulling pranks, it's fairly harmless. I don't think these are like awful people at all. But it is it it, it is a question that when we put this online, the story definitely got read because people are like, wait, what? I mean, and people love love stories about private schools. They just do. At least they weren't swatting people. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Lisa, with your background in a healthcare company, you surely know all about how nonprofit hospitals claim to give all sorts of benefits to the community worth untold amounts of money. What does a new report say about Northeast Ohio hospitals and what they provide? This report comes from the Cleveland-based Center for Health Affairs. So Northeast Ohio hospitals contributed $2.2 billion to community benefits in 2021. That's up 5% from 2020. But when you combine it with Medicare shortfalls and bad debt, that actually goes up to $2.6 billion. Um, The community benefit is described as the value provided by nonprofit hospitals in lieu of paying taxes. So these include things like uninsured care costs, free health screenings, and physician education, among others. So um, $2 billion sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, a lot of times these community benefits can be hard to quantify. But they say that the reason, some of the reasons are COVID economics, more Medicaid expenses were reimbursed if states didn't reevaluate the eligibility of their recipients during the pandemic. Um, Benefits and wages went up sharply because um, like 12% from 2020, because so many more people became contract workers instead of hospital workers. Yeah, I, I, the, the problem with these is they're kind of unauditable and they make these yes. grandiose claims. But if you talk to people in the neighborhoods around these hospitals, they don't feel like they're getting that benefit. University hospitals got hammered last year because it's closing facilities and yet they claim, oh, we're so great for the community. I, I, I think that if they were more explicit in laying out specifically what they're they're saying, it would mean more. I think these big numbers just don't give people a lot of faith. But look, you worked in one mm-hmm. of these systems in Texas. What did yeah. was and it different? It, it well, and MD Anderson is part of the University of Texas, but uh, and they are a nonprofit, but. When they do their charity care, it's not at MD Anderson. It's actually through the county health system. So you're not even going through the front doors of MD Anderson for care. You're getting MD Anderson branded care through the county hospital system. So, you know, make of that what you will. But yeah, and like I said, it's really hard to quantify. And of course, hospitals lean on these numbers. Oh, yeah, we're doing great. But, you know, I don't know. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Come back and check us out on Thursday. Thursday.